Hi, welcome to the ACA, Adult Children Voices Across America speaker meeting. If you'd like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org, click on online meetings, and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And sharing his ACA journey tonight is David from Detroit, Michigan. My name is David S. and I'm an ACA. This is my, uh, probably my third Zoom meeting, probably third or fourth Zoom meeting today with um, a myriad of people like this. But you're, you all are my favorites of all the groups. My other, my inner children weren't able to attend those other meetings because I was working, it was due to work. And so I'm really happy uh, to be here with you. And in this moment, I am feeling scared. Weepy, anxious, tired, energized, numb. I always like to start um, the feeling check-in in my share. And the reason I do that is because of that don't talk, don't trust, don't feel rules that I had in my home. And so it's not always an opportunity when I'm in an ACA meeting to uh, affirm that it is permissible for me to feel my feelings, to talk about my feelings and to trust my feelings. Um, recovery, um, uh, recovery like addiction is progressive. ACA recovery like addiction is progressive. It's really uh, interesting. I'm also a member of the beverage programs I qualify for a number of, pro of different programs. Um, uh, but our ACA recovery is quite different in the sense that um, those other programs for me, there was a clear item that I could point to to indicate that I was on the track of recovery. One, I wasn't drinking. I'm not drugging. I'm not overeating. I'm not engaging in uh, this particular sort of behavior. I'm not spending. I'm not debting. I'm doing something there that we could lock into. Uh, many people, um, in my experience in ACA, come into ACA from other programs um, uh, that are like that. But ACA isn't like that. ACA is very much about my own humanity, my own uh, ability to occupy the uh, internal landscape of myself. And there's a, a, a provision in the Red Book I want to read for us that basically um, speaks to that for me. And it says that um, our experience shows that the codependent rupture, which creates an outward focus to gain love or affirmation, is created by a dysfunctional childhood. It is the same rupture among adult children of all family types. This soul rupture, which I love that phrasing, the soul rupture, is the abandonment by our parents or caregivers. The abandonment sets us up for a life of looking outward for love and safety that never comes. This identification creates a viable fellowship of such diverse people. But that language around that soul rupture and constantly looking outside myself was pretty much my childhood and a great part of my adult life, right? Where I, uh, 
was so alienated from myself that I did not trust my own internal instincts. I looked to the outside of myself for purposes of gaining love, safety, and belonging. Uh, there are um, another preface things. There's lots of teachers out there, Big Red Book. And we in ACA, we have lots of teachers talking about, you know, uh, uh, readers as far as uh, uh, talking about codependency, Melody Beattie, uh, Deepak, uh, Oprah, John Kabat-Zinn, Benet Brown, lots of teachers out there. For me, my experience had been that, you know, there's lots of teachers out there, but, you know, for me, there are only certain ones that I could hear. Only, I guess maybe it was my growth or, you know, where I was at, but lots of speakers. And so I get the opportunity to grow in that way as a result of hearing. And that touches upon meditation. And I kind of feel real scattered right now in this moment in this moment, and that's okay. Um, my inner teenager was feeling very, very anxious about being here with you this evening and felt like, oh my God, there's all these people that I want to uh, feel belonging with and I feel really, really scared. But, you know, we uh, talked it out, we hugged and um, he's okay. It feels, I feel grounded in that, but I needed to let you know that because that was there. Um, social contract occasionally I curse so if you you know have that if you hear an occasional f-bomb no you I'll let you know ahead of time that that might be coming but um so what it was like uh, it was a reading in the red book this rupture of the soul right constant looking for love safety and belonging I know I was going to go as well one of my earliest memories and um a number of my, I was very uh, self-sufficient when I was a child, a hero child. I got the message very early on that I, I needed to be independent and take care of my siblings, take care of myself, not have needs of my parental units, not ask for stuff, not look for them to comfort me, despite there being lots of instances of trauma. I do have complex PTSD as a result of those experiences. Um, the experience that comes to mind right now I want to speak about is that I was playing out in the yard with one of my uh, neighborhood kids and he had a GI Joe doll and he was playing with the doll and I was playing with sticks for my doll. Right. And so my dad comes on, my dad was a police officer in the, uh, um, I was raised in Omaha, Nebraska. He's a police officer on the force there. And uh, I'm playing with these sticks. I'm like, dad, I, I want a GI Joe doll. And he said, little boys don't play with dogs. And that message uh, traumatized me and it traumatized me because here was my friend was a little boy and he was playing with dolls and I was just told hey we don't do that little boys don't do that and it set me for this endless search as to what little boys do there's lots of coding that we get messages that we get they get imprinted on us to be a certain way and if we're not being that way then love safety belonging are denied us Already within my home, it was not very demonstratively affectionate. So there, all, there was already that alienation. There's also uh, an alienation for me and um, in my experience, just being a, a person of color uh, when being raised up in the 1960s as to how I behave and engage in the world, just a sense of not belonging and otherness as a result of being a person of color. And that very much was part of uh, 
my upbringing and my experiences, which is just adds another social layer to um, me getting present to the issues of my life, to the alienation that I felt. Um, so much so that, uh, uh, and God has a real interesting way of addressing that stuff. For the longest time, for many instances, I would not leave out of the house without my identification. It's under the guise of I might get asked to present some identification and have a negative experience unfold as a result of that. Uh, and uh, I just moved to Michigan from San Francisco. And when I got here, I had um, gotten uh, had insurance on my car. And because insurance is really high here, uh, I was asked to present my insurance uh, a couple of different times. And I did, not by police, but by the state uh, emailing me saying, hey, you have this car insured because people buy insurance. And then they'll let it go and drive without insurance and that sort of stuff. So I got this notice. I said, hey, I paid my insurance. And then um, I did it again. Uh, I paid it. Uh, I got another notice and I did it again. And then um, the third time, I was like, oh, I already did this. I don't even bother. So I didn't have registration on my car for months. In fact, the registration, uh, they said it expired. I didn't have license for like, a registration on my car for like nine months. So I'm driving around in an unregistered car and never got pulled over or anything like that. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I can be okay out here in the world and not have this stuff going on. It addressed the trauma, the, uh, the feeling of, of, of trauma, of traumatic trauma that I potentially could get as a result of that experience. But it was letting me know, I don't have to do that. And now I can leave out of the house and doesn't set me off, you know, if I don't have my identification or I don't have, you know, stuff that I feel like that were messages that I got from my parents. Uh, growing up that I needed to have in order for me to be safe. My dad, as I said, was a police officer, very much uh, part of the community on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, when he came home, he was very abusive. Very important lessons I got from him, um, one which concerned when his mother died, he had said to me, you know, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't cry. I didn't do anything. I just went down and had a drink with my friends. He pulled me a large glass of J&B and that was it. Mom was gone and I was on. Um, another, he had brought home a, a, a what was it, a, a toaster, maybe it was a toaster or something like that, but a toaster still had the price tag on it, right, that he got these benefits as a result of being a police officer. And so there was just this way of uh, these different various rules that he got to play by as being a result of being a, a police officer. Lots of messaging around that sort of stuff, just as to who he was as a person and his own sense of, of trauma. He too was an adult child. Um, his uh, remembrance of his grandfather, that he was, his grandfather, with his grandfather was drunk, riding a horse uh, in their kitchen, in their home where they lived at. So it just, this legacy of alcoholism and trauma just goes way back within my family. My mom was, uh, uh, was uh, also an ACA family of 13, very impoverished, lived uh, 12 brothers and sisters living in a one, two-room shanty shack near a, a packing house. If you know anything about packing houses, you understand the smell and the stuff that goes on around those areas. It's very much, imp imp uh, very much impoverished um, and uh, very much uh, traumatized uh, by the events of the sixth season, civil disrest and all that sort of stuff where we lived at. In fact, one of my earliest memories was that my folks were not home and uh, there was uh, fires burning downtown areas where we lived nearby. And uh, uh, I'm there with my uh, 
four or five siblings and just in a panic and wondering where everybody was at. And so um, uh, just wanted to, uh, I wanted to leave the house and I did. I took my siblings, I ran and left out of the house, went down, the, looked down the street, saw the National Guard at the end of the street and uh, National Guard at the other end of the street, just went back in the house. And I think I called my grandmother or something and she said to stay there. But, you know, stuff like that was uh, ongoing. And also I was a child, I had asthma, medical condition, right? Where I it just couldn't uh, breathe. But I understood that, uh, that what that taught me was that I got attention if I was sick, right? If something was wrong with me, then I could get some attention. I could get some uh, comfort. I could get something uh, like that. Back at one point in my teenage year, I saw some guy, he had fallen off his bike and had injured his face, scraped up his face. And I was like, oh my God, I should probably do that for myself. I used to go hang out at neighbor kids' house and they, and one particular family was like, you know, David is going to have to go home because he can't, he's been here every night this week, right? Um, because they look like family to me. They would talk, they would eat dinner together. We used to do that sort of stuff when I was a kid, when, at one point when I was coming up, but that had all ceased. Um, so that was my home life. Oh, I did have one of my uncles um, who, I don't know, I just had a kind of a connection to him, just a sense of vulnerability. I got a sense of being loved from him, not uh, uh, and appreciated. He was a carpenter. And when I was probably 10 or 11, he was killed in police custody. Uh, circumstances doesn't matter, but... Uh, he disappeared from my life. And it still set me up for this sense, constant sense of seeking love and, and belonging. But by the time I got to be 12 or 13, I pretty much figured out I had everything I needed to have uh, from my parents. And I felt like I was ready to leave home. I didn't, but it did set up a whole nother level of abuse that I was the recipient of. I was constantly being thrown out of the house for no apparent reason. I'd come home from school. And my dad would just throw me out of the house. My, um, the first time it happened, I went down and hung out with my mom uh, at her job until she got off of work. Uh, she brought me back home. She had me sit outside in the, uh, in the kitchen until she went in and talked to my dad. And, but the thing that uh, was uh, remember about that is that while I was waiting for her to come back and tell me what was going to happen, I could hear my brothers and sisters playing but my sense of my belonging there, I felt completely alienated from the environment. I just, just uh, didn't belong to me. None of my stuff, my clothes, anything that was there didn't belong to me. And I had had that experience previously in an incident where I was getting a, uh, a beating, uh, a spanking, a severe spanking. And I was being told not to cry in the course of it and uh, hearing Kids outside playing, hearing um, uh, the person giving me the spanking, tell me to be quiet, and I separated from myself. I separated from myself and I left. And it wasn't for many years later as a result of uh, my trauma work that I remembered that instance because in, I had a experience, dream, EMDR, where I had ran around to each of the different rooms in the house, said goodbye to the rooms, and I was doing this in my dream. And I got to this room where this happened at, and I couldn't go in. And outside that room in this 
memory in this dream was that five-year-old self of me sitting there just profusely crying and told me that I couldn't go in there. I was like, I couldn't go in there. Why can't I go in there? What's wrong? I tried to go in there again. And then in that moment, this is a dream. One of my friends tapped me on the shoulder that I trusted, that I had appreciation and love for, tapped me on the shoulder and it was okay for me to go in. And I remembered this happened, what this beating was. So um, those memories, those instances set me up to become an addict and an alcoholic. One of my earliest memories around my active using was me and my brother had been home at home and we were probably maybe eight or nine. He was, he was probably eight. I was probably, I was probably eight or nine. It was very early. There was a commercial on TV that said, hey, kids are sniffing glue and here's what they're doing. They're taking a plastic bag, they put a paper bag, they're putting it like this, they're putting glue in the bag, they're putting it to their face and they're sniffing. And this is what the commercial was. It showed us how to do it and what exactly to do. So me and my brother looked at each other. I got the glue. He got the bag and we went out in the backyard and we put them together and then we started sniffing. And um, we didn't get high. And we learned later we didn't get high because it was Elmer's glue. But what that said to me was that, hey, uh, at that early age, right, my external circumstances I wanted to escape from, right? I wanted to escape that early on, right? My, um, I, from there, it was, you know, very soon after that, we were stealing uh, my father's beer and his moonshine and his alcoholic beverage or whatever his beverages and putting water in there. So by the time I got to be 18, I was a full-blown drinking at a, you know, that had, that, that became the answer to all this uncomfortableness that I felt going on in me. Um, that was 18. And so by the time I got to be 18 to 23, I drank and drug with the best of them. I can remember at one point I said to my, um, my dad, my, he was really my stepdad, my, my stepdad. I said to my stepdad, hey, when I drink and do this stuff, I get paranoid and I get afraid and this is stuff is happening. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I knew when he said that, it's like, oh, fuck. There it is, the first one. If it's like this, I'm screwed. I don't think I can continue to do this, you know, for any, because I don't feel like I'm built for it, which is one of those places where I get to where it's like, oh, my God, where I've gotten to in my uh, recovery that uh, I can't continue to do, live life the way I'm living it. And because I didn't know a different way to live, automatically the way I think about it is, you know, I got to commit suicide. I need to end this. I need to stop this pain. It didn't happen then. Uh, I didn't have many uh, efforts at that point in time to commit suicide. Not until that maybe 22 to 23, where there were some instances where literally, uh, either as a result of uh, auto accidents, something um, that, you know, would end up the pain that I felt, emotional pain that I felt. I came into program with when I, I got into recovery when I was 23. It was clear to me I no longer wanted what I had. I didn't know how to have anything different. Lots of failed re, uh, relationships, uh, looking at the uh, externals of other people, seeing them having success in relationships, having connections. There was just some way that I did not feel emotionally connected. And I didn't know how to be emotionally connected. I didn't know how to, 
I didn't know that I needed to be intimate with myself to be in order to be intimate with you. Still very scary, but that's the path to it. I have to have that internal connection with myself. Um, Julie, give me indicators as to my time. I'm not watching, so I don't have a sense as to that, okay? I didn't have a sense as to uh, how to be intimate with myself. I, I just didn't know, uh, intimate with others. So what led me uh, to ACA was uh, being on the path of recovery. We had talked about earlier about other programs. I came into the beverage program. And today, as I sit here, I have 37 years in AA and NA of recovery experience. It means I went go to a lot of meetings and uh, lots of going through the steps, lots of sponsees, lots of work. And the, the thing about the beverage program is that it doesn't really care about your emotional state of being. In fact, it says resentment is the um, uh, bane of our existence. That's my phrasing. It really doesn't say it like that. It says, is the, is the uh, get the phrase, but in any event, resentment, number one offender, right? For AAs that we can't afford. It's a dubious luxury of men who and women who drink like and drug like we do. So um, didn't really care. I could go talk all to the cows come home about, you know, my emotional state of being and unable to connect emotionally with people and all the other things that go, dysfunctions that go on in my life connected to my ACA recovery. And my sponsor would say, did you have to drink? Like, no, like, cool, you had a good day, right? Because that was what it was about. So long as I wasn't doing that, engaging in that behavior, right? And so uh, just as a result of being in the other program and meditation and step work, right, started that process for me of me uh, uh, connecting to myself, um, getting still, right, uh, allowing some uh, possibility. I've done, um, I think I probably mentioned, uh, I think in my recovery time, uh, I think probably most most recently, probably within the past year and a half, where I haven't had a therapist, right? Where I wasn't working, actively working with a therapist, where I wasn't actively uh, engaging with a third party. I try to keep from very early on, I try to practice the principles. Again, that foundation, it was clear. I did no longer wanted what I had. And I didn't know how to have anything different. You know, I had, um, and that, for me, involved me willing to do the work, right? I have this phrase that I love, work uh, liberates, not my efforts to be free. I wanted to be free from all of that stuff, right? Uh, sincerely wanted to do be it, but I didn't know how to work it, how to do it, how to accomplish it, right? And so um, that meant I had to be willing to take in pause long enough to take in here what exactly that is what's going to help me do accomplish that. I had gone to, um, as a result of my uh, recovery in uh, AA, gone to Codependence Anonymous, looked at uh, the food programs, looked at my issues around sex, looked at my issues around uh, Love Anonymous, looked at my issues around all these different programs, right, that I went to. And all of them, if you had a target, they had a target, they were hitting the target, but they weren't hitting the bullseye, not like ACA does. 
ACA hits me where I live at, right? Because it touches upon all these childhood tra traumas that were very much still in place. Uh, still the experiences, it's like they say, um, in order to heal it, I must feel it. So in order for me to be in my body, in order for me to, and, and, and the great thing is I don't have to go looking around for it. It presents itself if I'm being present to my life. I'm looking around and it's like, I don't like anybody that I'm hanging out with. Like I like all of you people. I don't like anybody I'm hanging out. It ain't them I look to. I look at me, right? What's going on with me? What's my state of being? Where am I uh, not loving myself? Because um, that brings me to um, where am I not loving myself? Because that's the part where it's like I get the opportunity as a result of those interactions to get the chance to, oh, this person's very angry. I used to be like that. Instead of having compassion, I, I'm in judgment about that sort of stuff. And so I get to see, flip it on its head. Well, where am I being that way? What am I doing? That's been part of my recovery from very early on. <coughs> Excuse me. When I got into, um, I was going to Codependence Anonymous. And one of my fellow travelers to this day um, said to me, man, when I hear you share, I think of about this, and I want you to come to an ACA meeting with me. And mind you, I had come to ACA many years ago when I first came into recovery. And what I, uh, at that time, uh, I was still very much in denial as to the trauma. I was in denial as to its impact on me. And, and that being so, so because <clears throat> it was clear to me it was happened in the past. It was clear to me that it wasn't in the present moment, I thought that I had addressed it. Um, um, I had said earlier, my dad, me and my dad, I'm actually, that individual I was talking about, my dad was my stepdad. My biological dad left my mom when I was a baby. So I only knew, my, I knew my stepdad from time immemorial, right? And so I thought of him as my, as my dad. And he was, um, he was, he adopted me. He adopted me. And so I had his, I have his last name, but my biological dad, I met with when I was 40. At the time I had no desire to meet him, but there was very much a, a part of me that needed to meet him, just needed to meet him for purposes of even just find out his medical history, just that. But uh, what happened was, and I don't know how I got here, but I'm going here. I met him and my, uh, uh, I was waiting. He has, I have a little sister through him and she wanted to meet me. So I went down to meet her. Right. And I was going to meet him as well. And so I'm waiting for them to come to the hotel to pick me up, but he shows up by himself that wants to meet me first. And he comes in and immediately my inner kid wants to, Hey, there's dad, grab him, hug him. I'm like, no way, man. We're not doing that. He doesn't get that from me. Like, no, we need to grab him. He's going to leave. He's going to do this. I'm like, no way. I had told I'm part of a, a men's group that I've been going to for maybe about 20 years now. And I had said to them, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go meet my biological dad, but I ain't calling that MF dad. He gets, I'm calling blah, blah, blah. And they said to me, the, the, being the deep listeners that they are, uh, David, who's asking you to call him dad? <laughs> 
he hasn't made a request. It's like, no, he hasn't. But just in case, I ain't doing it, right? And so, but it, my inner kids so just wanted to love him and accept him. Today, I do have that, but I recognize his uh, capacity for connection is also very st- stunted. I just get to love him in the place that he is. That's my biological dad. My uh, stepdad, the fellow who, ended, who adopted me, has passed. And um, oh, that does make me sad, make me feel sad. So um, meditation, meditation, big part of my recovery plan. How am I on time, Julie? Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. I haven't gotten to the good parts yet, in case you're all wondering. So uh, my uh, <laughs> so meditation. Uh, it was really interesting uh, beginning to get present to uh, my internal landscape, that internal sense of, of being, developing that uh, uh, inner parent, uh, getting becoming aware that I had a critical inner parent in place. I was so identified with the critical inner parent part of me that it appeared to be, there was no distinction between it, me and it. There was no uh, witness to it. We were one in the same, right? One in the same, you know, it's like, uh, it was me being judgmental. In fact, when I came into recovery, I very much, there was no way in the world that I could sit here and look at you all. I couldn't even look myself in the mirror without averting my eyes. I had such self-loathing going on in me and I didn't even know it. I didn't know it. And I felt like if you all knew me the way that I know me, you too would have a great aversion to me. So anytime, you know, I felt rejected, anytime I felt judged, anytime I felt uh, left out, less than, it was warranted. It was warranted. It was justified, right? And so, uh, as a result of coming into program and starting uh, uh, the meditation process, really, you know, coming into meetings and hearing other people share was really cathartic for me. It was immensely cathartic because, uh, and I'll tell you, experience. I'm I'm also um, a lawyer. I was in um, uh, when I got into recovery after I got some time clean time going and my sponsor said I was going back to school and I started going to school and so I went to school but I'm sitting in law school one I'm on moot court where you argue in court uh, it's fake court and my scene part my partner says to me uh, about a project we're working on uh, she had gotten fed up with me and my uh, selfish uh, behavior because I was hogging the product the, the project so she stands up in front of me and she commences to unleash how she felt as to what I had been doing. That I had been hogging the project, I had been taking the best assignments, I had done uh, uh, this, I had done that, and she was tired of me doing that and she felt uh, sad and dismayed and that she wasn't able to contribute to the project. And I sat there completely in awe of her. I was in awe of her that she was able to identify her feelings in that way. I so admired it. I mean, that was the thing that really was very attractive to me when I went into, when I came into AA. I was there at the, I can still remember the guy, uh, person speaking at my first meeting. He was standing there publicly talking about his hopes 
for getting back with his family, his hopes for not having to drink again one day at a time, his hopes for connecting with, you know, his, his, uh, with his family and going back to work and doing a good job. I was just amazed that people could do that, that people could literally stand there and tell the truth about themselves in that way. I didn't have the, I didn't feel like I had the capacity, but I felt like there was something there in that for me. That was, that felt like, uh, as I had mentioned earlier about, uh, I knew what I had, but I didn't know how to have anything different. That showed me that there was a different possibility. There was a different possibility. And what that meant for me was I was going to experience some grief, letting go of what I had known. Even though I know I don't want it, there's some grief there because I'm venturing into the unknown, right? I'm venturing. I mean, how many of us can say, oh my God, I thought you know, I'd come into ACA and now I'd be sitting on Zoom with a hundred people uh, listening to some guy talk about some guy wearing a self-love is the greatest love of all t-shirt and you know, thinking, oh my God, that's so true. I, can, I, I connect with that. How many of us would have thought that? I wouldn't have thought that. I definitely would not have thought I've been talking to a hundred people for 45 minutes about my internal sense of my internal discovery about myself, not on my charts at all, but I'm willing to have the experience and take the journey, right? Because it is so rewarding. It's so my, if uh, my life, I could not imagine the trajectory of my life. My life, my, the trajectory I would have imagined would have been based on the experiences that I had, right? Same level of mind can't figure out a, a solution. Same level of mind that created the problem can't figure out a solution. I have to be willing to sit in a different possibility, an unknown. And that's what this is. It requires us to do some work. It requires us to take do the steps. It requires us to attend meetings. It requires us to make a commitment to ourselves, not to you, to ourselves that I'm willing to take this journey, come what may. Um, so that's what led me into ACA, all these other issues you know, um, uh, that I had. And so um, uh, I have had a number of fellow travelers. I mentioned I'm in a, uh, a group of uh, individuals that we've been meeting for 20 years, all of us in recovery, all of us have double digit sobriety, all of us, uh, uh, we get together and we, you know, we, uh, do uh, gut level check-ins. And sometimes we read books together, you know, on recovery. Um, I've been in a couple of different yellow book step groups. I've been, uh, I have them currently in a laundry list, uh, laundry list group. Um, and I do regular check-ins with uh, fellow travelers. Um, and that's, shape, that's the shape of my recovery practices today. I love uh, uh, coming to meetings. I love, our traditions. I love the um, big red book. In fact, there's always something in there that I'm like, wow, I probably read this before, but I never read it and heard it that way. And it's really interesting how that happened. Um, for many years, I don't know if you know who Pema Children is. She's a Buddhist uh, nun who does a lot of reading and write, uh, writing about meditation and just awakening. Uh, yeah, Adrian. And um, for many years, I couldn't read her. And so one day I'm in Green Apple Books in San Francisco and I had gone there. One of my friends had published a book. And so I went there to purchase it. And I'm uh, on my way, found his book, was on my way down the stairs to go pay for the book. And I got that, that impulse to stop, that 
quiet, discerning voice stopped and looked to my right. And there was a whole bunch of Pema Children books. I was like, oh, hell no. I ain't going there. It's too confusing. It's all a bunch of jumble, you know, stuff when I, you know, pick up her stuff. I don't know what it means, you know? And it's like, nope. So I picked it up and I opened it up. And man, it was like the words just leapt off the page to me. I could hear her. I could hear her. And that was my point earlier about the various different, lots of teachers out there pointing in a different way. And if one doesn't suit you, uh, your meditation practice, I heard a meditation teacher, like, you don't have to sit when you hear this, just take and, you know, listen to it and go about and doing what you're doing. Um, there's lots of teachers out there, you know, and we just have to be where we're at. There really isn't a comparison as to each other. Our journey, that our journey, the thing that unifies us, like we talked about that, uh, I read about that rupture of the souls, those early experiences, those feelings, those things connect us. Our journey, what wakes us up, you know, the thing that, you know, gets me motivated, gets me to that next step of my recovery of connecting with myself, maybe different from my, my neighbor, maybe different from my fellow, maybe something different. I, I often am of the opinion when I uh, talk with my fellow travelers, uh, if I don't hear a question, I provide no answers. Oftentimes it is just me uh, listening, you know, or, you know, to ask, you know, is there, are you willing to hear a suggestion, recognizing that there are boundaries that I maintain, there are uh, limits that I have as to me, there are needs that I have, and there are feelings, right? Isn't that interesting, you know, to have needs, right? And to um, attempt to, I used to attempt to try to get them met in very dysfunctional ways. I didn't know I had needs. I didn't know I had a need for uh, connection and belonging. I didn't know what exactly that was. Today, I have the ability to identify what that is, what it is I'm looking for, and to express to others that, you know, this is what I would like uh, uh, to happen here. This is what I perceive is my need here. And to state, to become aware of what my limits are. You know, I can go this far, but I can't go that far. Or to communicate a boundary. Doing that inventory when I'm looking around at um, uh, situations and circumstances in my environment as to oh, um, I need to communicate a, a boundary here after I do my own inventory as to what's going on with me. So I said, oh, I do need to take and let this person know, you know, uh, this is what my uh, boundary is with this. This is how far I can go here. Um, so, oh, I know where I left off. I was talking about the critical inner parent. So I identified with the critical inner parent, didn't have a sense of a, a loving inner parent and that development. But for me, that came about as a result of me recognizing that that peace was there, that that critical voice in me wasn't my voice. It was, an, it was something I adopted. Much like when I stated earlier about my dad telling me little boys don't play with dolls, right? There was that coding that was there that I adopted as my own. We get a lot of those sort of messages. You do this, you live here, you go to that school, you do this that way, then you are esteemed. You get revered as a result of having done it that way. But that isn't where my feelings are, right? I have to be willing to look into, well, how do I feel about, you know, uh, yogurt, right? Oh, you know, my wife likes yogurt. I don't like it, nothing against it. But to be able to say that and not have to feel, I have to be codependent in my response all the time. Otherwise, uh, love, belonging, and safety is going to get taken away from me. Much like 
was communicated to my uh, to me when I was a child that I had to be a certain way, right, in order for me to get love, belonging, and safety. But which never came in the way that felt like it satiated the part of me that wanted that connection. What I did see, and I keep going back to this, I saw uh, my parents, their connection, right, and looking, to, you know, that I needed that, you know, sort of connection uh, with someone, right, looking for that outside of myself. It's a full-time job. You'll hear, well, it's a full-time job, me paying attention to myself. You heard it said here, I'm a full-time parent to my inner children. Yeah, I am. I am a full-time parent. But it, I have to be, and it's just like this, is that even if uh, those parts of myself, right, I had a loving parent there, it's still just a five-year-old. It's still just a, an 11-year-old that needs parenting, that needs guiding, that needs teaching, right, as to be. But I need to be connected with those parts of myself because I, I, uh, I get to connect with my true self. I get connected to my, uh, my true self, that part of me that leads me to the possibility, thank you, of integration with myself. I had no idea I could talk for 40 minutes. Hmm. Any of it. Um, it's been uh, uh, wonderful um, talking about my recovery, um, talking about uh, my journey. Uh, it's uh, very overwhelming, um, emotionally for me, not overwhelming. It feels very, it feels very satisfying. It feels very grounding. It feels very connected to be here with you. I feel a lot of love. I feel, I, um, I feel a lot of love. I feel, um, yeah, I don't feel alienated from myself. And I feel like I have permission, oh, there it is. I have permission to share of myself and to look into me and share that space as to my um, inner loving parent, that inner space of me, my uh, sense of me, uh, and to allow you to be close to me and not feel like I need to hide or that I feel shame or embarrassed as to anything I've said here to you today, which is a wonderful thing to be able to occupy that say that, that, that space and to know that I get to validate myself today. Um, it's important to me that uh, um, I make program calls. It's important to me, uh, I'm looking at my notes here to see if there's anything that I uh, wanted to talk about that I didn't talk about. Um, having fun, being able to play, to relax, to have downtime, all those things, because uh, this can be uh, feel like this uh, a lot of work often. And that's the thing that when I talk about that internal journey getting present to me. It's a full-time job paying attention to myself. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like I'm constantly being present to me. But that's the life examined. That's a life examined of owning and looking at what that is. It was harder staying, you know, in my dysfunction. It was harder maintaining my second guessing being codependent. It was harder maintaining all of that chaos in my life. And I didn't even know I was in chaos. Um, uh, there feels like there's a number of different things. I keep having different memories come up. And one of the ones that uh, really got me uh, increasingly aware that I got to say this is that, you know, I didn't know how people were uh, 
reacting to how to to me in many ways. I would see situations and circumstances and think, oh my God, why are they so afraid? Well, it was because of how I was behaving. I had no idea I was as angry as I was. I was as uh, dysfunctional as I was. I had no idea, right? But when I came into recovery, I could look at those things, those situations and circumstances in my life and see, oh, that's why, David. You know, that's why. But it's not that way today. And the guy that walked into recovery 37 years ago, he's not here anymore, you know? It's kind of like a, 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 uh, those voices have moved to the back of the room. And now, you know, when I find myself comparing myself to others, that it comes up. It's like it follows on the hills. You know, you're just as good. You're just as loved. Uh, you can have the same things. You can do the same. Uh, the trajectory of my life has been um, beyond my wildest dreams. I'm really, really grateful for that. And I think probably my time is up. Thank you all. I'm really grateful that uh, you're here.